Welcome to What Happened Next, a podcast about newish books. My name is Nathan Whitlock, and I'm a writer. On this podcast, I speak to other writers about what happens when their new book is no longer new, and it's time to write another one. To let me know what you think of this podcast or to suggest a future guest, please go to the contact page at nathanwhitlock.ca. My guest on this episode is Alex Olin. Alex is the author of three novels and three short story collections. Alex has been shortlisted twice for the Giller Prize, among many other award nominations, and she chairs the creative writing program at the University of British Columbia. Alex's most recent book is the short story collection, We Want What We Want, published by House of Anansi in 2021. Esquire said that We Want What We Want is, quote, shot through with dark humor and keen powers of observation. The Toronto Star called the stories in the collection stunning and said that, quote, Alex Olin is a magician. Alex and I talk about the slight culture shock she experienced when she first became part of the Canadian publishing world, the weird and intense experience of launching her career by publishing two books simultaneously, and why, if she were absolutely forced to do so, she would say she is a short story writer first. So we actually did a reading together. You probably don't remember this. I do remember. It was a long time ago. It though. was a long time <laughs> ago. It was it was about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it was very strange because it was in Owen Sound. Yes. Which, during a heat wave. During a heat wave. <laughs> um, and it was, I think it was for the Writers' Trust Prize mm-hmm. at the time. So they had all the finalists. It was you, Thomas Deboji, Rawi Hodge. Mm-hmm. And then it was supposed to be Linda Spaulding. Right. But for some reason, they asked me to play the part of Linda Spaulding. And to this <laughs> to this day, I I have no idea because I've never met Linda mm. Spaulding. We're not close friends. I'm not. Mm. I'm not. But you the look easiest. so much alike. So yeah, exactly. I, what I wanted to, to, to note about that night was Rowie Hodge. I had just reviewed his most recent book. And I mm-hmm. think I had said some tangy things mm-hmm. about it he immediately like started poking at me he was not happy with you at all he was not happy with me and even on stage he made mm-hmm. some jokes and references and took a few swings at me I'm saying all this to to say that throughout that whole process it felt like there were these two little boys <laughs> taking swings at each other and you were the adult in the room <laughs> you and I feel like that is the impression I get Hmm. in terms of like your public persona (laughs) is that you're just, you're the adult in any room. (laughs) Well, whether you feel like that or not, I don't know if I feel that way, but um, I, uh, I am pretty calm tempered by, by nature. So maybe that's the vibe that you are getting, but it's funny because when you invited me to be part of this conversation that, um, 
that night that you're talking about is absolutely the first uh, thing that came to my mind. And in a way, because it was was so rare, like, um, I feel like it's actually quite unusual for things to bubble to the surface in such an overt way in a writing community. Like it's more often to be like back channeling and, um, and whispered about. So it was, um, it was really interesting to observe and obviously uh, a memorable (laughs) occasion. At the time that that happened, also, I think for me, like I, um, I moved back to Canada in 2018, and this was long before that. So I was, uh, I was living in the U.S. and this whole thing of like prize culture and festival circuits and the very kind of small um, Canadian literary community where you are likely to review someone and then meet them on stage, um, you know, soon thereafter, that was all kind of new to me. So I was certainly observing it with a lot of, a lot of interest and with the feeling of being a little bit of an outsider to it. I had forgotten that you only moved here in in 2018, after yeah. obviously growing up being a child here, but right. I didn't realize that you were kind of encountering this weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was the first time. I mean, I was living in Pennsylvania at the time, and I had really come of age as a writer in the US. And of course, I had tried to like stay on top of things and to to read people who were getting good press and everything, but that's not the same as sort of being in Canada and participating in, a, in events and, and getting to know people. And I remember that year, uh, it was the first time I had been nominated for any um, any prizes or or anything like that, and I didn't really know much about them. To my you know, to my shame, I should have. But um, so, in addition to the Rogers Trust Prize, I was you know very lucky to be nominated for the Giller, and I didn't know what it was. And Sarah McLaughlin, who was then the publisher of Anansi, she called to tell me that I was on the shortlist, and I was like, great, you know sounds good. Like I had no idea. And she was like, you know, you have to come to Toronto. And I was like, yeah, great. I'm happy to do that. And she's like, you know, you have to get a dress. And I was like, okay, I'll wear a dress. She's like, no, it has to be a really nice dress. Like I just had no idea that it was going to be what it turned out to be. And so it was, um, it was eye opening. That whole year was eye opening. Right. You were picturing just sort of like a big boardroom or just like a restaurant. Like a public library in Mississauga. Like I didn't (laughs) know. How long did it take you to acclimatize once you moved here? I think it's an ongoing uh, process um, because there are still kind of um, touchstones or things that happened sort of before I moved back that I, you know, I don't know about and the kind of, um, you know, reputational hierarchy that people have that I didn't, you know, because I wasn't around, I don't know it. And in some ways, I think that's actually um, a good thing. Like, I don't have to get sort of um, weighed down in in the past. And I think my focus has been more to educate myself on what's happening in Canadian writing now, which is so different, even from what was going on five years ago or 10 years ago. The landscape is is shifting all the time in ways that I find extremely exciting. So, um, yeah, so that's what I think about is like, who's coming up? um, You know, what's um, what's going on for the next generation of writers in part, that's because that's my focus as a teacher is like, how can we, you know, continue to sort of open things up and and sort of remake Canadian writing into, you know, a sort of exciting face for the future as opposed to, yeah, what happened before. Right. Well, even the era, you know, that that you were nominated for the first time for the Giller, it was still very much a novelty for mm-hmm. um, a, a writer who was not one of the big 
the big, big names to be on that list. And even one of the publishers to, that was not one of the multinationals. For the first few years of the Giller, it was just seen as like, well, we'll give it to Mordecai Richler and then we'll give it to Alice Monroe and then we'll give it to right. Margaret Atwood. And then when yeah. we run out of those giant names, we'll just start again and we'll start right. giving it to them all over again. <laughs> and then it it was it was still very much a novelty then for like a a book from an independent press mm -hmm. and this person who's not a, a household name to be on that list. So you were just coming in at that beginning of that that shift and now now it's you nobody know, all blinks of these an independent eye. Presses yeah. are really getting so much recognition for um, the great work that they're doing, and I mean, I think that's kind of happening across North America, perhaps in Europe as well. That the kind of um, responsibility of fostering, um, you know, literary writing is increasingly landing on the shoulders of independent publishers, and in some ways, they might be better situated to it, or they're able to kind of lavish care on what we used to call small books, right, or, or mid-list books um, in a way that, um, you know, the, the whole like sort of economy of multinational publishing is so complicated now and it's not really set up to nurture the career of an emerging or mid-list uh, non-famous writer, right? So it's, um, thank God that we have all these great small presses in Canada. Yeah. You didn't say that you were not the adult in the room <laughs> and you don't, you are not the adult in the room. Um, I mean, I've seen a quote from an interview with you where you did categorize yourself as, as someone who doesn't like a lot of attention, mm -hmm. as somewhat of a private person. But at the same time, I think a lot of writers have also adjusted to this era where they have to be out more and be public more and be more of a persona and be more on Instagram and more of a, I'm going to say it, more of a brand. Has that been something you've you've been able to adjust to, or do you just feel like I can't I can't inhabit that role? Yeah, it's something I've thought about a lot because it's it's definitely not my favorite part of being a writer, and I do have a, a lot of innate discomfort uh, with it. But at the same time, I think it's a privilege to be in the position uh, of. Um, having a brand or having any kind of platform at all for writing. So I think where I've landed with it, which does feel okay to me um, at the moment, is to try to think about what I can offer in that space that is helpful and that is uh, about more than just me. So, you know, what I can, what can I bring to the conversation? Like, I'm a teacher. I love teaching. I love teaching because it's a conversation about writing and an opportunity to create community and to think about what goes into the books that I love. So when I approach promotion or any kind of speaking opportunity, uh, that's kind of the angle I try to take is uh, like when my last book came out as a collection of stories. And I mean, I love the short story. It's how I came to writing. Um, it's the first writing that I really, really loved, right? Eating, uh, reading Alice Monroe as a teenager is how I kind of started to conceptualize even the idea of being a writer. So what I did for the promotion of that book was try to write about short stories, the craft of stories. That's something that hopefully I have some expertise on and I can um, offer some uh, thoughts on how stories are put together, what the possibilities are that are inherent in the form. So that to me feels like less narcissistic than just like, here I am, here's my book, I'm awesome, which, you know, to me, it's just, ugh, I, I don't like right. so much enjoy that. <laughs> right. Yeah. But even that, I mean, even that answer, 
<laughs> I will say sounds so much more adult <laughs> in the current era because it also, honestly, I can imagine a a publicist hearing that and going, oh no, Alex, <laughs> we, we need you to like go surfing or we need you right. to like go to the best restaurants and, and take pictures of your meals. Like even, even that feels so much more adult. Your uh, most recent book, which is a collection of short stories, um, We Want What We Want. I've actually had people say both versions of this around short story collections. They either write all the stories in a clump and they're all really connected and they're all about a particular theme and they were all done in some sort of mad, you know, frantic burst of activity, or they just write a story and then they write another story and then and then they look around like, oh, I there's this whole handful of stories. Do they match up? And it feels like yours were the latter, where you mm -hmm. just had this bag, you know, pillowcase full of stories. And then and I think it was your editor that actually kind of went through them and said, this one goes with this one, this one goes right. with this one. I will honestly say as someone I haven't written a lot of books, but they've all been novels so far. I feel a little stressed at the thought of that, of just kind of writing a story and then and writing another story and who knows where this is leading. I like the idea of like, I have this big job I have to stay on and that's my that's my job and I, I've got to see it through to the end. Yeah, I'm definitely more of a short story writer by nature and... Um... I really liked the freedom that comes with working on one short story at a time. And if it doesn't work out, I don't feel like there's that much pressure on it. I put it aside and sometimes I, you know, cannibalize the draft for something else, or sometimes it winds up being sort of like a study for the next version of the story or, or whatever, but I've only devoted like a small amount of time to it, as opposed to, you know, a novel that you might work on for five years. And then if it doesn't work out, oh my goodness, that seems like a huge bummer. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't come off. Um, so yeah, so I've, I've always treated the short story as like a place to be, um, for me, uh, more playful, more experimental, you know, to try something on. And I think that I'm a better writer under those terms because I, um, I have more confidence and I can take more, more risks. I will say I also have, I do know that feel, that other feeling that you're talking about of um, wanting to feel engaged and to sort of live in a single project for a long time. So the way that I've always done it is to actually do both. I have sort of like a crop rotation system going on where I will work on a novel for a certain amount of time and really enjoy that kind of tunneling deep into the world of the novel. But then when I hit a roadblock or I need a break from the draft, which is often the case, you need to step away from it, or at least for me, like you, you get sort of so in the weeds that you do need to, um, to take some time away from it. So when I'm taking that time away, then I can write stories or when I'm procrastinating from the novel, I don't know what I'm doing with it. <laughs> I'm writing stories. So like stories become my cheat space and my fun space. We're like, oh, the novel is my duty and the story is like the fun thing that I'm doing on break. Um, and I think that also kind of results in better, in better stories. But so the stories are sort of like, they help me release some pressure and have a good time. And then I go back to the novel with, with fresh eyes. And eventually, you know, by the time I've turned back and forth between those two modes over a certain number of years, I wind up with a completed novel and a completed collection of stories. Interesting in terms of your career and in terms of your previous books, there was a kind of weird situation 
which was you had a collection of short stories and a novel published simultaneously, which mm -hmm. I've never heard of before or since. How did that situation come about and what did that feel like? It was my editor's idea, my American editor's idea. And I, because I do tend to work on two sets of projects at the same time, I had a two book contract. So um, the books were more or less done at the same time. And certainly it would be much more typical to stagger them. And um, that's how it is almost always done. Um, but my American editor, I think, had the idea that it would be a way, it would be so novel and so unusual that it would be a way to um, get more attention for both of the of the books and um, that it would be a way to sort of like launch me and um, sort of try to um, increase my reputation. And it was a very sort of American idea. And again, I remember Sarah McLaughlin from Anansi saying Canadians are going to hate this. It will be perceived as um, immodest and self-aggrandizing, and there's going to be a backlash against it, which I thought was really interesting. And certainly the downside was that um, I think that um, sometimes people didn't know how to review two books at once, or um, there was inevitably a sort of like, which one is better kind of way of talking about them. But um, I don't know that it, you know, would have been worse to have them be, be staggered. Um, it was, it was interesting. And it, it certainly did present me as like a writer with a body of work and mm -hmm. someone who hopefully should be taken seriously. So yeah, it was, it was interesting and a bit strange. Oddly and somewhat ironically, it was a you kind of launched your career. I mean, those weren't your first books, but it, it's kind of launched you through an exercise in branding. <laughs> you <laughs> yeah, actually began <laughs> your public career as a, as, as a brand. Yeah. Um, and I will say, I do remember when that came out. And yes, there was a lot of like, not, not grumbling, but there was a lot of puzzled, like yeah, head scratching like, what, what of like, is this? Yeah. who is this person? And uh, were we supposed to know who Alex Aline is? Yeah. Or was there ever a moment, maybe a few months later after that happened or a year later, we thought one of those books didn't get the attention it maybe deserved? Um, I don't know. There was so much else that happened to me. I mean, it was a crazy year. You know, it was just a wonderful, terrible, like in some ways, great year of my life, in some ways, horrible year of my life. There was just it was a very unusual and strange um situation and I, I I've written a, a little bit about it publicly not very much because I don't like super enjoy talking about it but in the interest of not being mysterious like so these two books came out in 2012 and um I got like the world's worst review in the New York Times like at that time it was like on Twitter it was like the story of the moment because mm -hmm. the review was so like outlandishly uh cruel pe some people said other people thought it was great I don't know um it's not for me to say but anyway so that that was like a huge kind of um, uh, moment of attention being brought upon me. And then I was nominated for these prizes in Canada, which was a brand new experience and uh, a huge amount of a completely different kind of attention. And at the same time, I was also um, uh, trying to have a child and went through some extremely traumatic experiences around that. So honestly, when I look back at that time, I'm glad I survived. I would not want to go through that year again. <laughs> yeah. It was a very strange mix of like public and private peaks and valleys. And uh, I, I don't know even like how to narrate what it was like, except that I turned around and it was a year later and I was sort of like, what the hell just happened? <laughs> you know. So the fact that there were two books at once in some ways was like the least 
significant part of it is what I'm Got trying it. to say. <laughs> yeah. And then you put on layer on top of that, this awkward dinner with Rally Hodge, two dorky well, that was That was by far and away the most intense and traumatic <laughs> event of the entire time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In a weird way, has that really intense year and the two books and, and the personal issues and the prizes, did you think at some point, like, is this what every book is going to be like? Is, is every year, every post uh, publication moment going to be this intense? Yeah, well, in some ways, you know, looking back, I have realized that um, the intensity of it was in some ways a privilege, like just to, to get that attention is a privilege to have people kind of rally behind me when I got this terrible review was like, honestly, one of the loveliest things that have ever happened to me. I also, uh, speaking of branding, did this crazy like Oprah magazine photo shoot with a number oh. of other different writers where we were dressed in, um, it was like, writers don't have a lot of money, so let's put them in the cheapest possible clothes. <laughs> so it was like, your, my whole outfit cost like $39, I remember, but then we had like um, a massive team of hair and makeup stylist people it was like the the scene in the wizard of oz when dorothy goes and like <laughs> she's in the emerald city and they do a, a huge makeover on her um so you know and that was a privilege too like that was incredibly strange and felt very gendered and bizarre but but also like nowadays uh any publicity space or review space or attention space or even social media space for writing it all feels like it's contracting and increasingly muted at least it does to me so I look back on that and I think well you know you were lucky that people cared at all you know because right. nowadays it's like it's like harder and harder to get any kind of conversation going about books um that's what it seems like to me anyway I was just thinking about what because Martin Amos recently died and mm. um people were talking about what a huge deal it was when he left his um he left his agent for another agent to get more money and he um said in part he needed the money to get his teeth fixed because he had like yes like terrible terrible teeth and people gave him such a hard time about it and I just think now like nobody would bat an eye at no. um, th that choice and it was such a like um genteel literary establishment like being horrified at his like venal like capitalist concerns but like it, that's crazy to look back on now things are so different yes so you're uh, most recent book, you had mentioned at one point that you were actually, you actually wrote it, as you said, kind of going back and forth, read, writing the novel that preceded it. I always do that. So I, I'm doing that now. I'm still in early stages um, of doing it. But yeah, I'm, I'm working on a novel draft and I've got about half of a collection of short stories. And I will probably do the same thing that I've always done, which is, you know, work on the novel for a few months, set it aside, write a story and then and then go back to it. It's just what works for me. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it for anybody else, but the pace of that and the rhythm of that and the way that like, you know, you sort of like plummet in your self-esteem because of things going really badly on one end and you turn to something else and kind of build yourself back up. That's um, yeah, it just, it's, it's a good rhythm for me for whatever reason. Right. But you're not following any sort of um, like scheduled intention in terms of like the novel first, then a collection, then a novel, then a collection. Yeah, it's no. just whatever's at that stage of maturity for you next. Yeah. Yeah. It's more of a process thing than any kind of um, like a schedule thing or, you know, certainly um, there's like no real reason to write short stories or to write a collection of short stories, like, like in terms of like, oh, this, you know, like career wise or marketplace wise, like there's no reason to do that except for sheer like love of it. You know what I mean? Um, it would probably be smarter to just um, 
just crank on on the novel but I I just do so love like the short story I just um when I read a good one they're just um a kind of joy that I get from it that I don't find anywhere else and then I immediately want to sit down and like write my own story right back to it right that's you know that's uh why I do what I do so I never want to lose that feeling I actually have a really dumb theory about the titles of short story collections. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in your response to this. I'll just read some, some prominent short story collection titles and you'll start to see what I mean. What we talk about when we talk about love. There's something I want you to do. Who do you think you are? You think it, I'll say it. A good man is hard to find. Show them a good time. Your duck is my duck. The thing around your neck. What is not yours is not yours, and we want what we want. So the theory is that short story collections, in contrast to novel titles, tend to be more intimate and mm. conversational. Yeah, I like that theory. I mean, maybe it's because that's what a collection is, is a, is a, is a set of stories that are in conversation with one another, right? So it makes sense that you are kind of, as a reader, stumbling upon this conversation and kind of entering in the middle of it, right? And the title sort of gestures to that. I also think there's something about like when people write a novel, sometimes there's like a pressure on it to have a really kind of, I don't know, definitive or, um, emblematic or, um, you know, almost like serious or weighty title, right? Something that's really going to um, sum things up in a way. And stories are sort of released from that pressure. So maybe they can afford to be more casual because um, you know that you're coming at it and it's going to be, yeah, a collection of items instead of one single thing with a message or as you might put it, a brand. Your current job, you're, uh, I believe you're on uh, a leave right now or you're, mm -hmm. you're taking a break. Yeah. Um, is this, is it specifically so you can do a, a whole bunch of intensive writing? Is that, mm -hmm. was that the aim? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, we call it a research leave. So it's an opportunity to step away from the teaching and administrative work that's been a big part of my life at uh, at UBC the past few years and uh, just really have some dedicated writing time. So again, very privileged, very lucky to, to have this time because during the year, as you know, like when you're teaching and um emailing and everything else that goes into to life it can be hard to kind of go deep into like the world that you're creating so it's right. really really nice to be able to step away for a while do you ever find that because the, another dumb theory i have is i've always felt that the more i knew about the process and the more i knew about the sort of world where all these books go to that get to get published it gives you a bit of resilience It maybe thickens your skin a little, maybe prepares you for what someone, if someone doesn't know anything about it, they might not be ready for like a terrible review in a newspaper right. and not know how, right. wh wh why someone would do that. Have you found the same thing or do you sometimes resist the fact that your day job is also connected to your other day job? Like your, your job right. as a writer is very much connected to your job as a as an educator? Um, yeah, no, that's not an issue for me. I, I really like um, the confluence between the two. I agree with you that I think it's really um, empowering and demystifying for people to know about the world that they're, um, that they're publishing into. And um, like knowledge is power, right? Information is power. And I also think sometimes people have a lot of misconceptions or um, they 
they can treat people who work in publishing as like gatekeepers who are like other than them. And then you, you get into these industries, the more you realize like most of them are um, working very hard and oftentimes writing themselves and um, to realize that most people in publishing want to be allies of writers as opposed to like just a fence that keeps you out, I think is really helpful to bear in mind. So yeah, I, I, I do really um, enjoy um, the opportunity to like talk about writing in, in all of its forms, including publishing production. That said, I also think there's something to be um, to be said for like not thinking about it at all at different <laughs> stages, and like that's kind of where I where I'm in now because like as much as you want to be um, aware and knowledgeable about for example, the industry, you also don't want like the industry to be in charge of you. You know what I mean? You don't mm -hmm. want the tail to wag the dog. Like you, you don't want to be writing to market specifications because like, it's not a garment being made in a factory. It's, you know, hopefully it's a work of art and one that, you know, is coming, you know, it sounds idealistic, but it's coming from some like deep wellspring of you because otherwise, if you're not doing it for that reason, like you, you know, why are you doing it? Um, you should probably, um, I don't know, um, maybe if you're doing it just like to make money, for example, it would be wiser to explore a different field because there's not a lot of money in it is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, so, so for me, when I am in this stage that I'm in right now, which is like, I'm on leave, I'm writing, I'm like really trying to think up um, the ideas and think of something that is, that feels fresh and new and exciting to me. I don't want to think about the industry or the marketplace at all. I want to be able to like take wild swings and potentially fail. I don't want to think about whether it's saleable. I don't want to think even about the reader because I don't want to be inhibited by worrying about what other people will think. So as much as possible, like when I am in this particular like drafting mode, I try not to think about that stuff at all. And I try to go into like a, my most private place and my place where it's like, you know, there's that expression, like dance, like nobody's watching. Like, I don't want to think about the other side of this at all. I want to think about what I'm doing. That's only for me. That's only very personal and strange and like probably not going to come out well at all, but to allow <laughs> myself to like be ridiculous, like to write the stuff that is going to be terrible because otherwise like I'm not going to get to the stuff that is good. I actually feel that it can be freeing in the very way you're talking about in the sense of once you know that the chances that you're about to become the next Margaret Atwood right. are so slim. The odds are so much against you and the, the money is what it is and the sales numbers are what they are. It can be freeing in the sense of, well, I might as well do what I want. No, that's true. I mean, that's one of the exciting parts, even about like the publishing side of it is that it's such a gamble. Like I, I think most editors and executives will tell you that they don't know what's going to make a book take off. They don't know. Um, they can't predict it. And they themselves just have to operate from their guts a lot of the time and, and pick the stuff that, that they like. And yeah, there is something kind of really exciting about that. I agree with you. From my reading of it, we're approaching the uh, anniversary, the 20th anniversary of your first book. Uh, in a, uh, I know, I don't, <laughs> don't mean to like, I think that's something to celebrate, but yeah, it's a weird thing to think. Do you ever dip into that book to to uh, the missing person? And would you, if you did, would you? Do you think you would recognize yourself in those sentences, in the way it's constructed, in those kind of thematic concerns? I have a 
haven't gone back and looked at it, I feel like I would probably be horrified. But, you know, I, I was probably a little bit horrified at the time. Like, I, <laughs> I only see the flaws in my own work. Like, I, no one is more critical of her own work than I am. Like, I see everything that's that's wrong with it. And the only parts of my writing that I like are, you know, the as yet unwritten thing, like, because it's right. perfect. It is yeah. genius, right? So I tend to like spend a lot more time looking forward than looking back. But one thing I have thought a lot about, though, in terms of like the writer that I was back then is like the the ecosystem that surrounded me and what I thought the models were and how, um, how much those have changed and how like if I were coming up now as like a young um, like cis female writer of you know a different generation like I think I would have a much different sense of like what the aesthetic possibilities of fiction could be than what I had like I was trying I don't know I was trying to like think about how can I be the next Don DeLillo or something or the next Martin <laughs> Amos like because those very like cerebral intellectual male writers were so kind of dominant in that era and and then on the other hand there was someone like Monroe who represented to me a different kind of lineage and heritage but it was very like I mean that's very white everything that I just described and very literary and now we just have a completely different kind of conversation about writing there's so much more hybridity there's so much more conversation about genre and, you know, people are reading hopefully more like widely and um, in um, across a, a vaster range of influence. And, and so that's, I think, is exciting to think about. So when I look back at my past, I think, well, that's that's who you thought was successful like back then. That's who you wanted to be. But who could you want to be now? And, um, you know, where do you want to go? Yeah, I always call that the sort of the grown-up table. Like a lot mm. of writers early on in their careers really want to sit at the grown-up table. And the grown-up right. table means I've got to write the big novel about the big yeah. themes, about the big ideas. And right. I know who's at the big at the the, the grown-up table. Did you have that feeling too of like I, I need to be a big writer? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, they they really were like in terms of publicity, they they really were like in the era that I started publishing, like it was very male dominated. And like we would call them like the Jonathans, right? Jonathan Leatham, <laughs> Jonathan Franzen and Jonathan yeah. Saffron Fuer. And like that was like who was like hot and getting all the attention and all the press and all the serious um the serious media and like not nothing to like slam about those writers like very very good writers all of them but just like really representing like a very specific niche of like what writing can look like what it can sound like what it can be about when you look back at earlier books do you feel warmer about short stories do you feel warmer about your like do you feel like your short stories were more accomplished then or your novel voice was more accomplished then um, I'm not sure. I, I I do think that I'm a story writer. Like that's where I'm strongest. So I probably like if you asked me like if I had to like defend myself in some kind of court of literature, <laughs> like what I would present to like prove myself. Like I would I would definitely choose my stories rather than any of my novels. Um, <laughs> uh, and just to go back to the idea of publishing two books at once, I have this one question, which is how dare you? I'm supposed to <laughs> who, do, who do I think I am? Who do you think you are? Yeah. <laughs> What Happened Next is produced and edited by me. The music playing under my voice is by the great Alex Lukashevsky, who is letting me use it for free. You can find more of Alex's music at alukashevsky.bandcamp.com. 
Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. There will be a new episode every Monday. Please buy more books, and not just new ones. Mm-hmm.